Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, really excited about our guest today, Ryan Panchadasaram. Is that right, Panchadasaram? That's great, Ryan Panchadasaram. Panchadasaram. All right, f- f- good enough. And we'll, we'll leave this in just so the listeners know no, no, uh, how bad they get practice. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Ryan's currently an advisor to John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins, which is sort of the legendary venture fund. But he's just done a ton of fascinating things over his career. And I just kind of wanted to have him on both talk about a book he just wrote, but also just about all the things he's done. So Ryan, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. We both share similar worlds. Yeah, exactly. That's probably partly why I was so intrigued by you. Um, you know, your background is to me so fascinating. Right? You've worked at companies like Salesforce and Microsoft. You've worked at startups. You created a startup. You've worked at the White House, the UN, VC. So, just let's go industry by industry or sector by sector, and tell me kind of what you most liked and disliked about each of them. Because, you know, I, I sort of have not dissimilar experiences. I'm, I'm curious if yours matches mine. So, okay, the, the big companies, Microsoft and Salesforce. Oh, I, you know, I had such a good time at uh, at Microsoft and, and even at Salesforce. Salesforce was maybe about 800 people when I was there. So it was still on the, the tiny side. But, yeah. you know, big companies, the wonderful thing about them is they have reach, they have scale, they have, uh, you know, if you're straight out of college, it's a place to learn. You've got a lot of mentors. And so those are those are the great things. Um, the, the parts of those places, which can be, you know, maybe frustrating is that sometimes things are a bit slower. Sometimes you got to deal with the politics, right? Both the capital P and lower P kind of things yep. to get stuff yep. done. But I kind of joke sometimes I say, well, you know, one of the reasons I was successful in government was that I had time at Microsoft and, and I mean that in <laughs> right. kind of an endearing way. No, no, I, I totally know what you mean. I, I was talking to someone recently, uh, who was having a, a little trouble at his job and we realized that. It was a speed issue because he'd only ever worked at big companies or in government, and just the the pace was really what was throwing him off. I think mm. now that he understands that he's he's fine. Um, yeah, so that makes total sense. Startup, you actually founded a startup. Is it Pipette or Pipette? How did you pronounce it? Uh, Pipette, yes. Pipette. Um, Good. Right? This, in in the healthcare space. So tell us about what it was, and then kind of give me. Any, you had a successful exit, so I assume it was a positive experience, but give me the pros and cons. Yeah. So, you know, small companies, the wonderful thing about them is that you get to kind of call the shots, you and your team. And so, you know, that kind of politicking that you have to learn in a larger environment, getting that buy-in, getting people on board, you don't have to do that as much in a smaller uh, environment. And, you know, that has its pros and cons. It means you can run in a direction incredibly fast, but you know, is it the right direction? Are you doing the right thing? Who's there to check you? Who's there to support you? Um, and and so, you know, there's always this kind of feeling that in a small company, you can do a lot of things quickly, but the dent or impact you're having can sometimes feel small. You got to actually grow that organization and grow the scale and reach. And then all of a sudden, one day you become a, come, become a big company. But um, I think I have such a fond memory of that time in particular, because I think for any founder that's listening to this podcast, you know, the weight of the whole, you know, company is on your shoulders and that's really hard. And I think founder (laughs) empathy is incredibly important because there's no other place on the planet where there's such something so fragile, right? Which is a startup and how it depends on the two, three people around the table working on it and that every fundraising round and how it doesn't look always so certain till it actually happens. I mean, it is crazy the roller coaster of a small, small company. Yeah. And the skill set that's required is so diverse that it's just, it's 
hard to imagine anyone actually has it, right? You, you've got to be serious and disciplined enough to create a product and technology, make sure it works. You've got to be a good good enough salesman and bullshitter to raise money and kind of, especially when things are early on, kind of make it seem better than it is. You got to have crazy perseverance to kind of work through the entrenched interest. So yeah, I, I hear you. I think being a founder is, is definitely one of the harder things out there for sure. Um, so then you became the deputy chief technology officer for the U.S., worked at the White House. Um, obviously, I find that totally fascinating. Tell us first the, the story of, of how you got that job, what you did there, and then the pros and cons. Yeah. So I, I uh, entered government actually as a presidential innovation fellow. It was meant to be a six-month stint, and it was in the healthcare space, actually in the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was the reason I came was... I felt like the impact that my company was having, right, this healthcare startup was only fixing a corner of healthcare. And if you actually zoomed out and looked at a place where you could go to try to actually fix a larger part of it, you know, government is actually an incredible place uh, to do that. And so I went in because there was this project about helping people get access to their health records and, you know, allowing developers to be able to build things on them for patients. And, and that super, was super inspiring for me. And so- I went in six months as this fellow and never left for the next three and a half years because there ended up being another problem or another opportunity or just a group of people working on something interesting that really maybe keep on hitting that snooze button, right? Like this and, was – yeah. Yeah. Is, is this when Obama was sort of rolling out the Affordable Care Act and all, all the kind of things around it? It, it, it uh, this was pre, uh, this was like when I joined was right before the Affordable Care Act. I remember actually, there's probably a tweet on my, on my timeline that was like, congratulations to, you know, the healthcare.gov team for rolling it out today on October 1st, right. 20, 2013. Um, I, I actually was pulled apart, uh, pulled onto the rescue team for that effort, um, later yep. that month. And, and that definitely changed my trajectory within government. I'd always been working on things. I always kind of say in the periphery, right? Really important projects, but if they failed or succeeded, no one would ever know. But if they actually, sorry, I take it back. <laughs> there were really important projects that if they failed, no one would ever know, but if they succeeded, they would actually make a really big impact in people's lives. But in this case here, being pulled onto the healthcare.gov effort was a key piece of the Obama administration's healthcare effort, right? The Affordable yeah. Care Act, um, it's which improved. Too. Yeah, yeah it, it was it was a legacy piece. It was fixing so much of the healthcare system. And guess what? A website was getting in the way, right? If we couldn't enroll people into healthcare, well, care, well you know what? Maybe this piece of legislation shouldn't exist. And so, you know, myself, along with a handful of other people, you know, raised our hand saying, how can we help? And we got jettisoned in there and met a lot of other government employees, as well as contractors that all kind of, you know, banded together, Bradley, like to, to try to fix this thing. And, and we were successful ultimately end. And that's a, a story in its own right. But it kind of showed you that every single bug or regulatory fix and if it's done well, can improve someone's life, right? And and that was something really just addicting and exciting. And I really do recommend anybody listening to take a tour of duty in government because the things you're kind of working on and fixing there are really meaningful. And guess what? There's a lot of low-hanging fruit and a lot of great people already in there that need your expertise to pair up with. And it's really rewarding and satisfying. Yeah. So- 
you obviously, there was a lot of scrutiny around the rescue effort, right? It's like the thing that everyone in Washington was focused on. What was that like? And and what do you think it would have been like if you did the same thing before social media? You know, if <laughs> I, I, I think... Um... I think it was still like mainstream media was the place where it was being covered. We had this sort of joke, which was like, well, if you need to know if the site was working or not, you just flip on CNN or Fox News. They'll tell you if it's not working. Right. Because um, when we got to the scene, there was no monitoring that was installed that anyone could kind of get a sense, is this website working or not? And so that was one of the first things we did. We embedded new relic and mix panels so we could see if the systems were working and where people were dropping off. Um, but if that were to have happened today, I mean, I think there would be even more scrutiny and even more just round the clock attention. But I mean, of course, back then, this was 2013, there was still a lot, you know, with Twitter and news and such. Yeah, it just makes everything so much harder. And then, you know, we'll see where it goes. But with Elon purchasing Twitter, I think it might get even more toxic and controversial if, if, if it weren't enough already. It's one of those experiences where, you know, the rescue effort, we were successful, which was, you know, by 80% grit, 20% luck, or maybe the other flip you can, you could debate, but, yeah. you know, I think the lesson to take away from the, the, the experience is, you know, these, these projects that governments do to transform and create things and magically ship them three years from now, those things don't work, right? Like the actual success from healthcare.gov is what's happened since the rescue effort, how it's actually right. re-engineered every component, kind of like a train moving and each component and car is being replaced over the course of four years. And the cool thing about it is if you go to healthcare.gov today, it's like a 12 screen experience instead of the 81. It's always on, creating an account is super fast. You can shop for, like you can do so many things to it because the current team, the leadership at CMS, as well as the engineers that are working on it, you know, they're taking this iterative approach, right? Like fix a piece, ship it, fix a piece, ship it. Like that, that that's the thing you got to take away from this disaster is not go find yourself a rescue team. It's build things iteratively, ship them, put them in the public. Um, yeah. Which is sort of the opposite of kind of the, the Washington mentality, which is everyone assumes because they are the center of the world in their minds that when they debate an issue, when they pass a bill, when they launch something, that's the entirety of it. When in reality, it's just sort of the beginning of it to yeah, then see you know if that. it actually works and can help people, you know, but it's just that that is not a mentality that people in Washington seem either to understand or to want to accept if, if they do understand it. Well, because there's the big celebration around once the bill is passed, right? You've done so much work in this where you pass, which is so important, by the way, getting the Affordable Care Act passed, getting this bipartisan infrastructure, right? Like it takes so much work to do that. But you know what? That's like still just day one, right? Once that bill passes, someone's got to implement it. Someone's got to execute it on it. What does success look like? How do you continue to improve it? You know, it's... um. The execution part is just as important as the idea of it. Yeah, exactly. So then how did you go from that? And then the White House said, what, you, you can't leave and go back to HSS. We need you here. Like what, <laughs> what, what actually happened? Yeah. So, you know, that I mean kind of long story short would be, you know, I came in as a fellow. I then actually went to the White House as a senior advisor working on data things. And this is when the healthcare.gov piece happened. And after it, you know, we all looked around the table at the White House and, and said, well, you know, a crisis like this cannot go to waste, right? There are other problems happening across government. How do we fix it? And well, a solution is to 
recruit and bring great people from across the country to come work in government in tech, from tech in government. And so uh, a handful of us started the United States Digital Service, which is there still today, recruiting great people working on incredibly pressing problems. And it really became this bandwagon where I, I spent, I guess, the next year and a half um, supporting the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, which is what got me in. How do you bring entrepreneurs into government? Supporting the U.S. Digital Service Program, which is about getting more senior leaders from tech into government to help with these more, you know, priority pressing projects. We did a lot of work trying to lift up entrepreneurs across the country. Right, like part of my work was very inward focused, making government work better, but it was also outwardly focused. How does the U.S. stay? competitive? How do we ensure that the next batch of entrepreneurs are are here, right? That they're, they, it's made in and found in the United States. And was the digital services group a- able to continue post-Obama? I mean, he was both really pro-tech and just generally calm and stable, and then obviously everything flipped on its head. Um, did they just operate kind of in isolation, or did the White, Trump White House be like, we don't care about this? What happened? You know, there was a great leader that took over after Mikey Dickerson named Matt Cutts, who joined, I believe, before the transition happened. And he stayed on the entire Trump administration and then handed the reins over in, in this administration to Mina Shung. And no, they kept working, Bradley. Like they kept working on important problems at the VA. They kept supporting the healthcare.gov team. They kept working on the issues that that mattered. I think that's actually kind of the um one of the uh, the secrets to government is there's the stuff you see on TV, which is the politics, and then there's the stuff that's actually happening behind the scenes to get the stuff done, where the true government work is happening, and that stuff just keeps on churning. And, 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 um, and to, just like you said to the listeners, like it is hard and frustrating and slow and doesn't pay well, but it is both incredibly interesting and you know that you're doing something really genuinely important. Uh, totally. And and the thing is, for anyone listening, you get to pick if it, you know, do you want to serve at the federal level or at the state level or in your local community? And I think the, uh, I'm envious of, of, of folks who get to work closer to their communities, Bradley, right? Like in that world, you get to actually serve your neighbor, your friends, your family. Like, like there's something really yeah, special to- about to- that. Totally. I thought I was going to say to you, as I noticed like one thing that isn't on here is city government, which you would, I think, love because especially a place like New York, where you have all of the immediacy Mm. of city government, right? Like my first job out of college, I was the spokesman for the New York City Parks Department. And I kind of realized pretty quickly, if the parks are clean and safe, eight and a half million people have a higher quality of life. And if the parks are dirty and dangerous, they have a lower quality of life. It's it's as binary as that, right? So you have that kind of real cause and effect. New York City also has a $95 billion budget, right? It could basically be its own city state like Singapore if it wanted. So, and this is true in, in a lot of major cities. So that the, the one thing I think left that's not done on your list yet is, uh, is you know, city government, deputy mayor, maybe run for mayor somewhere. Um, maybe that's the tagline. So, it's like city government's instant gratification. You know, <laughs> gratification. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, I've worked at city, state, and federal, and – I, I did find City just the most interesting and mm. fun and, and yeah. rewarding. Uh, exactly. I'm jealous. Like I, you know, I spent a couple of years in Congress working for Schumer and like we did, I was his comms director, you know, we had a lot of press conferences. We showed a lot of press releases, you know, not that much actually happened, right? Um, so, you know, it, I, City government in some ways is, is a nice uh, relief from that. All right, let's talk about Ebola because all of a sudden, you know, after you fix uh, healthcare.gov, uh, you get pulled into this. How did that happen and what did you do? Yeah. So I was in the uh, CTO's office and there was a pressing issue of just data coordination, right? I mean, that's what our office was known for. We helped um, relaunch data.gov. We helped with the open data executive order, which 
reminded people, hey, our taxpayer dollars are helping, sorry, funding agencies to collect data, right? From the Department of Ed to HHS to others. And you know what? If it's our taxpayer dollars, if the information has nothing sensitive in it, like, you know, personal health information or PII, well, you got to make it available to the public. And so, you know, we were part of this big effort to get lots of data sets released and um, which of course still continues today. And there's incredible open data efforts across the state, federal, local level. And um, as part of that, just kind of being, trying to be supportive and helpful during that moment, uh, our, our small team said, well, you know, there seems to be a data coordination issue happening here between NGOs, external folks like companies and in the internal side. And so we ran maybe for about a month and a half, just these sessions where we're able to do these kind of connection, connect, be just act as like physical connective tissue. And it wasn't anything splashy or flashy. I mean, it's really, you can get a lot done with phone calls, conference calls, and emails, you know? Um, I think in moments of crisis, you can't really build new tools. You've got to be able to lean on the ones that already exist. And then you got to pick the one that everyone has. And well, a lot of folks have emails, a lot of folks have phone yep. calls. And so that yep. that's what worked best. It worked, yeah. So then just given that you then developed some expertise in infectious diseases, um, tell me your reaction when you first heard about COVID and kind of had you see it coming and had you, I assume you had a different relationship to it than most people and kind of when you saw it, what were you thinking? Yeah. Um, so this is around, you know, the, the March timeframe, you know, as soon as seeing it, I mean, in any public health crisis, the most important thing, the most effective intervention is information, right? Where is it spreading? If you know where it's spreading, anybody that lives in that geo, well, you can take appropriate precautions and, and actions, right? Like just, uh, and so around that time, the uh, White House had announced that it was releasing, you know, thousands or millions of tests, right? Lots of tests. Everyone has tests, 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 tests. But there was no place or area at the CDC or even at the White House sharing who was taking the test. What were the results? You know, this is kind of really critical information that usually gets released. I mean, the CDC has been, you know, historically released influenza-like symptom information very publicly. And so I think the you know, spider sense uh, kind of went off a little bit when a couple of weeks going by and there was none of this data being released. And then very quickly seeing a community of folks getting formed around the COVID tracking project around a spreadsheet saying, well, you know what, the states are reporting it. What if we try to aggregate it and share that? And, you know, what we ended up doing very quickly was filling a gap that the federal government wasn't doing, Bradley, right? The federal government in the earliest stages of the pandemic were not, was not sharing critical data about where it's spreading. And so it really was up to the public, in this case, a handful of volunteers in Slack channels and in Google Sheets, right? Because that's the technology that was incredibly accessible yep. at the moment. Yep. We're, we're aggregating and sharing this information and then very quickly became the authoritative source for where and how COVID was spreading in, in the United States. So- had you end up becoming a delegate to the UN? Was that related to Ebola or like, did, or you just oh, like, that, hey, I've that, done everything yeah. else. Put, put me at the UN. Let's see what happened there. You know, that one there is is pure pure credit to my my former boss, Megan Smith. Uh, she was the chief technology officer. The third one, the first was Anish Chopra, who brought the policy uh, thunder to the office and really established it. Todd Park was the next chief technology officer. Um, 
a multiple time entrepreneur in the healthcare space, incredibly incredible person. And his, his addition to the office was, well, how do we make government better? Right. So now the office has two, two, two arms to it. And then when, when Megan Smith took over, she inherited those first two and then added the other piece of how do we lift up innovators and and, and, and entrepreneurs, of course, in the U.S., but also globally. And so we became delegates to the U.N. because we saw the sustainable development goals, right? These are the collective number of goals that countries all around the world identified as important in tackling. And Megan's all reminder was always, that, you know, there are people out there, Ryan, that are already solving these things. How do we find them? How do we lift them up? And she pitched this really neat idea called the Solution Summit. So right when the delegates were signing the document, what if in the room next door, we actually had innovators from all across the world, across all the continents, minus Antarctica, you know, working on these actual solutions and how do we lift them up? And so, you know, we acted as this sort of, you know, you could call them like we were cheerleaders for, for innovators. I mean, you know, you and I are in the venture capital world. We, we kind of call this venture catalyzing, right? Like how do we find the founders? How do we lift them up? Because, you know, Megan would always say, we're saying, remind, remember people do things. You got to go find the people. And so that was a very surreal and and very fortunate experience. And they continue to do the solution summits to this day. And, and that's um, uh, uh, super sweet to see. Now, you mentioned when you were talking about Microsoft, kind of the it, inside of big companies, there's sort of little P and big P politics. Obviously, that's true in, in real world politics, too. Um, how different or similar was it at the U.N.? You know, we, we were, I mean, at the UN, we were, uh, you know, being a delegate means you're, you know, attendee, right, from from a, right. from a country, in this case, the United States. And, you know, working with them on this idea, I think you, you know, it's interesting. Your question is actually a very, <laughs> I never thought about it this way, but you're right. Like in a lot of ways, you you had to show that this thing could be true and exist. I think for anybody who works at a large company, sometimes you pitch an idea and it's like, oh no, that can't happen, right? Or that's not possible. You know, right. the momentum is pulling us in this particular direction. Yep. And you've got to prove that it is right. You're like, so you write that one pager and they're like, no, it's still not. Well, let me get, you know, a few people on board. Okay. Well, maybe not yet. Well, let me actually, you know, get a, get a recording of these five or six innovators. And you're like, wow, there's actually something there, there. And I, I think for anyone listening that is in a larger work environment and you have an incredible idea, you know, you got to somehow sometimes build some momentum around it, right? Give permission for people to believe that it's possible and that you can do it because, you know, you're a, an entrepreneur just on the inside and, you right. know, you're not fundraising from venture capitalists, you're fundraising from, you know, your colleagues and the leaders above you and, and having them allocate time and resources. And so it's a different kind of hustle. It's, um, it's a long game hustle sometimes. For sure. So then speaking of the hustle, what made you decide to go into venture capital? Oh, this was a, um, a, uh, an incredible opportunity that I, I couldn't have, um, couldn't have, 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 have planned it, um, Bradley. Like, so I, I moved back to California. Um, so my entire time in DC, I, I've been actually flying back and forth because my wife was, was based out here. And, um, you know, early on in the uh, healthcare.gov uh, crisis part, there was a gentleman named Michael Abbott, who um, uh, was a general partner, Kleiner, who actually was, was one of the advisors on the rescue team. And so I was reaching out to him basically saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm moving back. Uh, I'm thinking about starting something again, like, you know, can I get some advice or what can I do? And, you know, he's like, Hey Ryan, like come be an EIR here, come to Kleiner, build your company here, uh, when you get back. And, um, 
that's what I did. And actually my, my first kind of seven, eight months, uh, leaving DC, I was pursuing a few different things to build. And, and, but during that time at Kleiner, John Doerr was shifting from being managing partner to, to chairman and, um, of, of the firm. And what that meant was of course, he's day-to-day absolutely involved at Kleiner, but was also going to be doing a lot more out of his family office, a lot more, um, from there and was looking for a partner to work with. And, um, he had this criteria. He was looking for, uh, an engineer, uh, a founder, as well as maybe someone who had, um, uh, <laughs> either, I think it was the, the criteria was either healthcare experience or experience in government. And I was like, Oh my God, that's me. Bradley, that's me. <laughs> And, yep. you know, after like six, seven months of interviews and just getting to know him and, and, and really seeing that we see the world very similarly. And, um, we started working together in, uh, right. Actually, uh, I think I signed my, um, you know, like offer letter a week before the election. It's good timing. Um, so John Doors, our listeners know is like on the Mount Rushmore of, of venture capital, right? Like he's right, right up there at the very top. What have you learned from him that you, that you have found most useful? Hmm. I, it, it's been a, um, I have all these notes actually that I take Bradley, like in, in this little notebook that I'm like, uh, one day I, I, I owe it to the rest of the community to share these learnings. Right. Cause you know, you learn in, um, by fire, right? Like essentially like sitting alongside, cause I don't have a finance background. I didn't have investing experience, but you know, I'd been a founder, been an engineer, worked in these different places, but there's still a whole world about investing that you learn while, you know, while doing. Um, but John is an incredibly kind, incredibly, um, uh, giving person in the sense that he is not afraid, you know, he, him and Megan are very similar in the sense where he always wants to make sure that the right people are in the room, right? Pulling more people in the room that need to be there to hear the substance that's happening. And so those people can go get the work done, <laughs> right? Cause they're the ones that are actually owning the problem and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, I think for for seeing him in action as well too. There's this deep, deep respect for founders. Um, you know, when you invest in a company, there's no one more committed to it than the founder, and that's something that's um, you know a lot of firms say they're founder friendly, and you know for them to mean it, they, they it really does mean sticking by them to the very end and uh, through the best times and the worst times and all the parts in the middle in between and. You know, seeing John's relationship with his founders, you can see why the tie and bond is so close, right? It's because the investment, sure, it was made on, you know, because of the company and idea, but really, it's really about that person, their yeah. perseverance, their ability to fight and really say to John and to Kleiner and the firm, no, no, I'm going to see this through. And I'm not going to throw in the towel, but if I do, I will tell you, but I'm not going to throw in the towel. And if John sees you not throw in the towel, he's not going to either. Right. And he hangs in there, right? which I imagine applies to everything he does. Yeah. And so you guys decide to write a book together, Measure What Matters, which really talks about kind of management and staying focused on important goals, you know, did really well. What'd you take away from that book or for people who yeah. haven't read it yet? Like, what's the one thing that you think is the most important insight in there? You know, the, this is uh, in, in board meetings, right? I think there's there's two things that I would love to share with folks that are listening about John Dora and in board meetings. I think for him, the embracing of OKRs as being this like powerful clarifying force, right? I think for most of the John Dora lore, and it's true, you know, he teaches organizations how to use OKRs and really 
empowers them to use it, right? He'll never force a company to use OKRs. It's got to be something you want to do. And, yeah. you know, the book Measure What Matters is a, um, a book form version that actually goes through the depth that he's always wanted to about doing an OKR training justice, which is not telling you about OKRs, but also sharing uh, the different stories of different teams using them and how they struggle with them, how they succeed with them, how they use them in a nonprofit, how they use them in a, you know, a company like Google. And so, you know, this book, Measure What Matters, as well as the website, whatmatters.com is really meant to be a way to empower teams to set audacious goals, do it in a clear fashion, set the measures that matter, and then go for it. And, um, you know, that's a big part of, 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 of leading an organization is setting a direction and what success looks like. And OKRs are a great tool for that. Totally. So then you guys decide, how'd you decide to write a book about climate? Was, is it just oh, yeah. something that you're both really interested in or like what, what was the discussion like? Um, oh, I, I promised two, two, two John Doerr nuggets in board meetings. So the nugget number one was OKRs. Oh, sorry. The other, yeah. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> right. I'm just realizing I'm like, oh my gosh, someone's going to listen and be like, but Brian, you said two. Um, you know, the, the, the other uh, piece that he always reminds is, you know, I think as a great board member, you know, what are the, uh, what is it? <laughs> How does it go? It goes, what are the three questions you're going to ask that are really going to shape the conversation, right? What are the three questions that you're going to ask to the founder as well as the team that's in the room that they haven't been asked yet? Right, that's gonna that's gonna really shape the course and really make that meeting worth it. And so, it's something that I always carry in, like you know, my back pocket, um, Bradley. It's like, okay, OKRs, we got to make sure we do that really well. But then it's like, as a great board member, what questions are you gonna ask? Right, it isn't, you know, I think John's also a really big big advocate and reminder that you know, management leads companies, not boards. Right, the management team right. does. And so how do you create the environment for them to succeed with OKRs, these tough questions and important questions? Um, but to your question about speed and scale, to your question about the climate crisis, um, you know, John's been working on tackling this crisis ever since his daughter, um, post-watching uh, Al Gore's movie, said, you know, dad, your generation caused this mess and, and you better fix it. And so Kleiner Perkins, over the past two decades, investing in clean tech and, and me only kind of getting exposed to it over the past five years. And so this is maybe two years ago, right before Christmas, this is right before COVID. Um, we were really looking at our strategy of how do we do our best work against the climate crisis? How do we ensure our investments are doing what they need to be doing? How do we ensure our philanthropic work is doing what it needs to be doing as well as our advocacy work? And we'll you know, how do you solve a big problem? How do you set a big goal? Well, John was, said, well, what does it look like if we applied OKRs to the climate crisis? And so that was the start, not necessarily of a book just yet, but a set of conversations because we did what any engineer or investor would do is go talk to experts. And so right. um, because COVID happened, many of these conversations in the beginning were all on Zoom and, you know, we asked to click the record button so we didn't have to take notes too actively and very quickly by conversation number like 15, we're like, we are learning so much. We are learning so much from the, you know, best expert in soil. We're learning so much from, you know, Al Gore and these other scientists and these other policymakers. We've got to share that with the world, right? If we expect to tackle this climate crisis, we need to share these voices, right? The voices of the people actually doing the hard work, the founders like Ryan Popple of Proterra or, you know, the CEO of Enphase, Baudry and, and Lynn Jurek of Sunrun. And not just share their voices, but 
share the OKRs, the measures that matter. Because I think one of the challenges with the climate crisis is that it feels sometimes so paralyzing. You know, everything you read is doom and gloom and doom and gloom. And what you need to really, <laughs> I think as engineers go, okay, I get that. But like, what do you got to do? What's the plan? And the book really tries to answer that question. What's yeah, the plan? And totally. And I think what's sort of really noteworthy about the book is it it's tangible, right? And I, to me, uh, maybe I'm giving you too much credit and John not enough, but a lot of that to me was sort of reflective of the fact that you understood how government really works. You understand how politics really works. Um, and it's not just this conceptual thing for some academics who are super smart, but kind of totally removed from the real world. It's this. Um, thank you, though. I think you know John is a, a a deep believer in the power of government, and um, you know the book is structured in two parts. The first part is the uh, the solutions. How do you get from uh, fifty nine billion tons of emissions down to zero? And the second part of the book are the accelerants. How do you do it really quickly? And you'll see that there are four levers you can pull on. Policy and politics is one. Turning movements into action is another. Innovation is the next, and investment is the fourth. And we put them all on an equal pedestal, right? They're, each of these things are equally important if we want to tackle the climate crisis. You've got to have great policy, leaning on innovation, as well as investment happening, and well, movements, people not just voting for the right candidates, but also folks say basically, you know, pushing their companies to do the right thing. And I think it's a unique point of view on this crisis because if you pick up most books on it, they'll lean heavily on one of the levers. And I think we take this approach where, well, there really are four. And if one of them is failing you, right? Like if you think the policy politics stuff isn't working, you got to lean on the other three and the other will hopefully catch up. Do you feel like this mindset is something that groups, organizations, and again, it, it could be in mm. or out of climate, because I, I don't actually yeah. think what you guys are talking about has to solely apply to climate. Do you think they kind of understood it but hadn't articulated it, or do you think this was an entirely new concept to most of them? Ah, uh, you know, because of using because we used OKRs to frame the crisis, right? It really made us <laughs> ensure that all the numbers add up, and it really, you know, when you looked at the different ways to approach this, the you know, writing a book, you could talk about the solutions and kind of leave it there. But for us, we were like, no, no, it's got to be in these two parts. And so, you know, in the first part of the book, we break down where the gigatons come from, right? There's a lot of actions that happen in the climate space, which are, are, are righteous and you got to do them, but that's not where the gigatons are coming from. And so if you have this energy to rally people, we wanted to show you where you should point that energy towards. And so, you know, we've got a big objective around electrifying transportation, right? Getting everyone out of these fossil fuel vehicles. We've got a big objective around decarbonizing the grid. That means getting coal and gas off of our, our energy grids and adding a lot more solar, a lot more wind, a lot more storage, and a lot more nuclear. You've got three, objective three, which is about fixing food. And we talk about all the ways you can fix food, but when you look at the gigatons, there really are just three simple ways. It's about eating less beef. It's not about going vegan and being more vegetarian and things. It's really specific. Eat less beef, lamb, and, and, and cheese. Like That's where the gigatons of emissions come from. You can enjoy everything else, but really think about cutting your beef intake in half. It's also about wasting less food. It's also about um, 
you know, if you are throwing away your food, it is going toward the compost bin, like very tactical things for us. You know, we were approaching it as engineers, where are the numbers and what action does actually lead to it? Uh, the fourth objective is around protecting nature, which is very simply around ending deforestation. The fifth objective is clean up industry. The biggest uh, sources there are steel and concrete. And of course, there's plastics and other materials as well too, but steel and concrete carry the, the bulk of the weight. And then no matter how we cut it, Bradley, we, we ran every model that we could on our side and we looked at the others out there like the IPCC and so forth. The world still will be emitting, no matter how aggressive you cut things, five to 10 gigatons a year. And so in our plan, we assume that the world will still be emitting 10 gigatons a year. And so that's where carbon removal comes in. This is the nature-based stuff to, as well as right. the engineered things. And so that's how you and, go and from- you feel like, so a lot of times when we have climate experts on this podcast and ask about carbon removal, they kind of poo-poo it a little bit. Um, why do you believe in it? Yeah. You can't poo-poo it because we need it, right? Um, but you can't <laughs> lean on it as your first uh, action that you take either, right? If you're an organization, you got to first cut- the emissions that you are producing by switching to alternatives, right? Like look at the energy profile you have, look at the fleet of vehicles you have. Once you do that, how do you use the energy you have a bit more efficiently? And then you've got to lean on removal because it will still be a, you know, there are still things and part of your carbon footprint that you can't get rid of. And so you're going to have to lean on it. But carbon removal, Bradley, is so expensive today. It's, 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 it's yeah. basically $600 a ton right now. And for yeah. it to be affordable, it's got to be around 100 or maybe even 50. But forget the price for a second. The, the sheer availability of it, there's only been like 4,000 tons of it ever put in the earth, right? And we need four to five billion tons of it a year, right? So this is like such a early industry. So but sorry, I cut you off. One thing though on – no, no. Just I was thinking because I, I remember a couple of years ago lo looking at a company – and they said to me, you know, we're going to need $500 million for every plant we built to, to mm -hmm. you know, remove carbon. And it seemed to me like a crazy number. And then one of the hopeful things to me during COVID is in watching our government spend several trillion dollars to try to help people get through the pandemic, it kind of hit me like maybe they could spend several trillion dollars on this, right? You know, may maybe saving the planet and all of our lives uh, is equally worth it. So maybe the yeah. notion of, of getting that kind of funding, it felt more achievable to me post-COVID, beforehand, I just kind of laughed it off. So, you know, maybe that's that's one one silver lining. All right, last question. You've had all of these amazing jobs. You've done all of these really cool things. What's the one thing, and it can be tangible or it could be like general manager of the Red Sox, like totally unrealistic, mm. that you would want to do that, that's left on the list? Oh, my gosh. Well, I guess you you kind of hinted at it, right? You said I haven't done the city government piece yet, Bradley. Right, so, so I, that I, one, yeah. I feel like I need instant gratification. <laughs> but uh, it's, um, yeah, why not? Let, let's put it that put it that there because cool. that, that, that does it as a nice a nice little tie. Oh, I, I know a lot of mayors that when you're, you're done, a cleaner would love to talk you, to you, you know, about that. You know, the, so. the, the, city, the city, cities can have such an incredible effect on the climate crisis. And maybe this, if I were a mayor, how about that? Let's pretend. This is my, 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 my day one of my, my job as, as mayor. You know, I would, one, use my procurement power to really clean up the grid. I am the biggest buyer. We are the biggest buyer of energy, likely, right? If I'm the mayor and we're the city of energy. And so, boom, we do that first, right? Get clean up our grid. The second thing we do is we ensure that gas uh, isn't in any new buildings that get built. And we really pass a law that really helps people transition away from 
you know, fossil fuel burners for, for, for cooking and things like that to induction and to heat pumps for cooling and so forth. Those are, those are the first two actions. But the third one, which I know is going to be radical, Bradley, but it's the one that's going to get people out of cars. And that's to install protected bike lanes all throughout the city, this fictitious city that I'm, that I'm so mayor of. Have, having tried to do that and having done it, you know, we did it in the Bloomberg administration. You, nothing is as hard as, uh, as, as bike lanes. Like it is the most controversial. I remember when, when I was running Mike's campaign in, in 09, um, I was seeking the support of like some of the Lubavitchers in Brooklyn and their big ask to me was to remove the bike lanes. And I said, well, why do you care? And they said, scantily clad women come by on bikes. And I was like, there's no way Bloomberg's <laughs> getting rid of the bike lanes, man. You know, you can endorse this or not. But uh, I think they eventually endorsed this. But um, you, right, you, so, yeah. you're pioneers there, by the way. Like when when, I, when we did our research for, um, you know, effectiveness of rolling out bike lanes, does it actually improve traffic flows or not? Like there's so much that points to the work that happened in, in New York City. And I mean, honestly, it allows this statement to be true, which is the highest return on infrastructure dollars for tackling the climate crisis are through protected bike lanes. Because if you want to electrify transportation, it's going to take 15 years for everyone to switch to EVs. But if you give people truly an alternative in a city, and it can't just be one or two lanes, it's got to be connected and protected. Safe, yeah. This is the most impactful climate action you can take as a mayor. These three that I shared. Cool. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. That was a fantastic interview. Apologies both to you and the listeners that we went a little longer than usual, but I just couldn't stop asking you questions. So thanks again. Oh, I loved it too. Thank you for having me so much. <laughs>